Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is James Sharman. James wears many hats. He is the voice of soccer in Canada. He is one of the gang of six at Footy Prime, the podcast. He is the head of soccer content for Homestand Sports Room 442. He freelances for Sportsnet, and he is also a pie industry mogul. If you have come to hear the latest on MLS, Champions League, the Premiership, World Cup, and the absolute best discussion of football, you have come to the wrong place. I admittedly am not a soccer guy, but I am a business startup guy who loves a great entrepreneurial story, so I'm looking forward to hearing all about Charmin's proper pies. And who knows, maybe by the end of this podcast, the great James Charmin will have me converted to being a lover of the beautiful game. Welcome, James, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, Andrew, I'm doing great. Thank you. Very, very good indeed. Um, I'm currently at Homestand Sports. Uh, that's my my nine to five, and uh, I'm in a in a very small little office right beside a studio. So you might hear some some content bellowing through the walls. I apologize if that's the case, but uh, here I am. Excellent. Well, it's good to have a side hustle. That seems to we the way everyone does things these days. We're going to get into all that, but I want to know what part of town do you live in? I actually live in Pickering uh, these days. Actually, just moved there, there about a year and a half ago. We were we were Trontonians for a long time, proud Trontonians uh, in East York. But uh, more recently, went to the Burbs, and uh, <laughs> surprisingly, I've quite enjoyed it so far. Excellent. Well, we all make that move. I also I'm now in Richmond Hill, so that's a very okay. common kind of travel route. Now, I understand you were in Portugal not long ago. How was that trip? That was amazing. Yeah, my first time there. I actually went there to work. You know quotations work i mean we were in lisbon working with um dean blundell uh, another toronto legend um and his crime media working uh, stories around benfica which is one of the the great sports teams in in world sports really a, a massive club uh, and just really kind of learning about sport in in lisbon in portugal how they they just embrace these soccer teams and it's so much more to them than just sport it's, it's life it's religion so it was a great great week really enjoyed that great food great city, great people. I, I wish I was there now. Well, you sound like you did it the right way. There's so many parts to life. So it sounds like a great trip. I, I got to get out there myself. Now, let's please go all the way back. Get the James Sharman story with that lovely accent. It is unlikely you're a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And uh, please describe your upbringing. Yeah, so I was born in, in Seven Oaks, Kent, England, which is right in the southeast, about uh, 40 minutes or so outside London. And uh, I lived there till I was just turned 16, and me and my family decided to move to Toronto, to Canada. I actually, Mississauga, back then, uh, of all places. Uh, my parents had actually met uh, while traveling in, in the 60s in, in Toronto, and they lived here for, for some time, went back to England in the early 70s, and then realized straight away that they wanted to go back to Canada, but they weren't 
allowed to, different times. Um, as my dad will say, Pierre bloody Trudeau wouldn't let us go. So uh, it took us years and years. He's like the one Canadian, I think, that doesn't like Pierre Trudeau, I think, it seems. Uh, yeah, it took us years and years, and eventually we got the thumbs up, and we moved back in 1990 to, to Canada. And uh, I was, like I said, just turned 16 in high school, which is quite an adjustment, to say the very least, going from England to Canada. But I honestly, Andrew, thought I'd be here for a couple of years, and I'd move back home. Uh, and here I am now, 30... Man, almost, well, yeah, 33 years later, and I'm still here. And I've got a Canadian wife and a Canadian daughter, and uh, I guess I'm Canadian. You are. You absolutely are. Now, Glass Tiger's Alan Frew has been a past guest of this podcast, and although Scottish, he came over at a similar age and thus had a similar experience to yours of being dropped into the Canadian high school experience. He told me that his accent drew both girls and fights. James, what high what high school did you attend, and was it fun or a tough entry into our school system at that yeah. age of sixteen? That's a good question. Uh, I went to Loyola in Mississauga, and I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I guess in England at sixteen you're treated a little bit older. Um, you can go to the pubs, not legally, but you do. Um, you know, you're not carded. I wouldn't, wouldn't have been wearing a school uniform um, at that age either. So I'd come to Canada, and, and I couldn't get in the pubs. And um, we were treated more like more like kids, I think, perhaps, which I found a little bit difficult. Um, so I actually met a group of friends who were a little bit older than me. And my dad, actually, um, this is my dad again, he actually got me some fake ID. He felt so bad about it. He actually got me uh, his old international driver's license, which is an old gray, gray book. It was, it was so bad, and, and he put my face over his, a picture of me over him, and on an old dot matrix printer, printed out my birth date, stuck it in there, laminated it, and it worked a charm. So, you know, I was 16, you know, going on 17, and I was able to go to the bars with new, my new friends, which made it a little bit better. Didn't get in many fights. I have to say, the accent didn't draw fights, but the other half, yeah, it did all right. You know, the, the accent did, didn't hurt. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Certainly, it's a, it's a good conversation starter, put it that way. Oh, that's great to hear. And I, I, I have a trophy on my shelf, James. I have to tell you, I thought I was father of the year, but your father is now father of the year with that great story. <laughs> now, hockey, of course, is the Canadian way of life, and your entry to hockey was the Leafs' 93 playoff run, watching Dougie and the boys from Don Cherry's Grapevine and the Sports Cafe. You jumped right into hockey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I said, my, my, my friends back in those days, they were huge hockey fans, Leaf fans. And, you know, as an Englishman, we're, we're kind of a violent people, right, deep down. So I, I just naturally gravitated towards watching this incredible sport, um, even though I still love my, my soccer and my rugby and my cricket, um, which I grew up on. I, I loved hockey and the Leafs, and at the time is when the Leafs made the big trade with Calgary to get Dougie Gilmore and that crazy playoff run. It was all new to me, right? But I was going to the bar ready for the first time with these mates, you know, and, and sinking some pints, watching this this great run with Dougie and Wendell and Andrew Chuck and these guys. And uh, yeah, just had a, a great time. Really, I think, important time. Really got me close to those friends. And uh, I, I felt Canadian through the sport, I think, probably. It was a big reason. I, I used to listen to the Fan 590 or Fan 1430 it was back then, I think it was, or in the mid-90s. And I listened to it like 24-7 all the time. And that really kind of made me feel more and more Canadian. Well, certainly a great way to assimilate. Great days are ahead, we keep telling ourselves here. <laughs> yeah, but another great I'm not kidding. 
<laughs> no kidding. Now, James, you attended Ryerson for Media Arts, now, of course, renamed to TMU, Toronto Metropolitan University. What was your Ryerson experience like? It was amazing. I just loved it. Not so much the school, but the social side of things. Uh, the course I was in wasn't probably the greatest course, but I lived in a, in a co-op called Neil Wysick, just off campus, at right, just south of the gardens, actually. Um, and just met lifelong friends there, had such an amazing time. And I, I struggled, but I got through with a, with a degree somehow over four years. Um, it kind of opened my eyes to, to the communications media industry, which I, I found interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it was just a, a brilliant, brilliant time. You know, I, I grew up as a person more than a student, that's for sure. Um, it was media, right? Media arts. I mean, let's be honest, it wasn't a real degree, but I, I, <laughs> I managed to get one just about. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it was the right choice because I stayed in the media industry my whole career. Well, it must have been the right choice because you did get into a great career. And James, you were not just a day oneer, but a pre-launch day oneer at Headline Sports in 1997, <laughs> which eventually became the score. How did you get your start at Headline Sports? Yeah, so I was finishing up uh, at Ryerson and, and my friend told me about this new company starting up this new business called Headline Sports, new TV station, and he got a job there. He got me in there for an interview for an internship. So I basically interned at Headline Sports for about a year doing all sorts of sports, you know. But I remember my, my initial interview there just said basically, do you know sports? Well, yeah, I love hockey and that. Do you know soccer and rugby? And that? yeah, of course I do. You know, that's, they're, they're my sports. So um, they had a little, it was called a wheel at the time. And it was a short, short like eight, nine minute wheel a day with international sports called Sports World. And they threw me into that. Um, and I began like writing scripts and uh, getting the likes of Elliot Friedman, Steve Coolius, Greg Sansoni to, to voice these stories for me. And it kind of grew from there. But uh, yeah, it was just an incredible time. You know, we were cheap labor. They knew it. Um, they, they threw us into all sorts of situations, um, sink or swim. It was a great way to learn the business. I, I couldn't recommend a better way to learn the business um, for free at first, then part time, then full time. But man, that was a, there were some great days for sure. Great people. Well, they were great days and great people. Of course, Headline Sports, as I noted, morphed into the score. So much talent was produced there that we today see both on screen and in management. James, you've mentioned a few of them. Greg Sansoni, Elliot Friedman, Steve Coolius, Simon Bennett, Martin Gaillard. Any fond memories of any of those you'd like to share? Well, they're all great. You know, Tim and Sid, of course, legendary. That that place was just a, a production line of finding young talent. Anthony Ciccioni ran the place at the time, and he was just a great talent scout. And you find people from from wherever. I remember um, Elliot Friedman. Um, he had an interview lined up with Pele, the great Pele, and said to me, "Hey, hey, Shams, do you, do you want to come along?" I'm like, well, yeah, of course I do, absolutely. So he took me along, and I sat there, and I got to meet Pele, had a conversation off camera with with the great man himself, and just that kind of just. I remember that well because that was probably the moment I realized I'm in the right industry. I want to do what Elliot's doing. That was just so special, and you know. The media industry was changing so much at the time from television. The the internet wasn't that old, right? It was kind of growing as well. Um, so all these these opportunities rising from from that that company and uh, yeah, what a, what a great way to learn. It was like school. I learned more in my first month there than I learned in four years. I think at Ryerson, to be honest with you. Well, I love that uh, analogy. You know, sink or swim really throws you in. You have to learn, and of course, you have to learn every role. How'd you end up on the air as opposed to behind the scenes? Yeah, that's a good question because I never had any intention of being on air. 
if you told me back in my, my early days there, you know, you one day you'd be on TV, I, I would have said, there's no chance. I, you know, I, I was, I wouldn't say I was shy, but I was certainly never, you know, the center of attention, happy to be the kind of the gray man lurking in the corner, you know. But, you know, so sports world began evolving and getting, uh, you know, a bigger, bigger time slot, essentially. And people get saying, but you, you, you sound, you sound good. You sound, you've got the accent. You should be talking about these sports. And eventually my boss, Anthony Ciccioni, said to me, you know, I want you to start voicing this. And I was like, well, okay. So at that point, it was just voicing, no on cameras. And I began learning my trade through that. And then I grew Sports World into, into a 30-minute show. Um, and, and then at that point, he said, well, listen, you should be on camera. So I'm like, again, wow, really? Me, of all people? Um, but I, my motivation honestly was, well, I guess it's pretty good money and being on air on TV. So let's give it a whirl. And, and that's kind of how it started uh, through Sports World. Uh, and then back in 1997, sorry, 2007, sorry, uh, the score bought the rights to the English Premier League football and that's when i created uh the footy show to support that programming and that kind of really was my, my platform to really move it forward and and at that point i was pretty comfortable on air so yeah just uh you know i was a very reluctant on air personality i guess but i've learned to, to love it over the years well you're certainly open to trying new things and i think the footy show was interesting because it was multi-platform you had podcasting mm-hmm. you had blogging you were kind of ahead of the curve and uh, yeah. apparently not scared to kind of try different mediums when it came to media. I think that's right. Yeah, it was very much ahead of its curve. Um, we were very much in the mindset, you, you create content, it should be available on all platforms. You know, internet, we, we, we started a really early podcast back in those days, which did really, really well. Um, and that was important to me, get it out there as much as possible, you know, just saturate the, the soccer market. In Canada, at the time, there wasn't too much soccer, right? Sportsnet was doing a great job with Craig Forrest and, and, and uh, Jerry Dobson. Prior to them, TSN had, had shown some Premier League games. Of course, Soccer Saturday was a famous show with Graham Leggett. But there wasn't many of us doing it. And, and Norm, at that point, was really doing it the way we did it at, at the Footy Show, which is a very relaxed kind of feel, more of a conversation with the audience, which is something I've always really believed in, in in media. Don't talk down to the audience. Don't talk at them. Talk with them. Have a conversation. Because, you know, they're, they're smart. They know the sport. They know if you just bullshit in them let's be honest here and that was always been key to me when talking to the audience and that's why i think the footy show really kind of uh you know worked out well people respected and enjoyed that they felt that they're part of the gang myself christian jack you know uh, joe ross brennan dunlop thomas dobby and of course brian budd the great brian budd before he passed away paul james you know some great personalities and um i think that was why it was really ahead of its time but i think even now moving forward all these years i, I still believe in those principles with media talk to the audience like they're right there in the room with you now a big moment in your career must have been tfc's entry into mls in 2006 how did this change things for you yeah it changed the whole landscape of soccer in in canada um you know the fans the audience became far more sophisticated they began watching it having their team you know up until that point with respect to you know the the, the the few Toronto Lynx fans and Vancouver 86ers fans, they were there and they were hardcore and so much respect for them, but there weren't many of them. TFC's born and suddenly you know it's, it's, a, it's a big league, the biggest league in North America on our doorstep and people could no longer just have to support Juventus or, or Liverpool. They had their own, something to call their own. And, and the game just began to grow and then Montreal and Vancouver came soon after and, and Canada became... 
I won't say a football country because it's still not. I, I really believe it's not. It's getting there. But as we've seen in recent times, there's there's numerous issues. But we're getting closer. And that was really a big step, a big wave. Big personalities coming to, to our city, you know, from Mo Johnston, the first head coach, polarizing figure, but a massive personality and a guy I watched growing up. And I'm there I am sitting in a pub talking to Mo Johnston, interviewing him. I go, how did this happen? This is fantastic, right? Becoming friends with, with Danny Dickio and Carl Robinson and some of these characters from, from TFC. Um, it, it changed a lot. And I think that was a platform, I think, the springboard for, for the sport in this country to take that next big step. Now, in addition to your hosting duties, you have in the past also done play-by-play for TFC. How do you enjoy play-by-play versus hosting? Yeah, you know, I, I, I enjoy it. I'm more of a host than a play-by-play guy, to be honest with you. You know, I, I did some TFC games. I did Copa America back in 2011. Done some radio as well. Um, it's a very different thing, right? I think you can show more personality hosting um, a broadcast. And, and I've never considered myself an expert by any stretch. My job is to make the experts sound good and to ask the, the the right questions, the smart questions, to get the right answers from from the, the pundits. That's where I feel more comfortable. But yeah, I certainly enjoyed it, but there's a lot of pressure, right? I mean, getting all those names right and all those stats and being able to, you know, communicate the information properly. So when I do hear, you know, a good play-by-play guy or girl, you know, I've got major respect for them. And, you know, that's going back to hockey. I, I don't think there's anyone more skilled in, in the game than hockey play-by-play broadcasters because that sport obviously is so fast the players are changing so quickly soccer you can let it breathe a little bit you know it's far Absolutely. more um you know you, it's almost like baseball almost like like cricket it works well on radio more so perhaps than, than other sports because you can let the atmosphere breathe in so yeah i mean listen i i, I would definitely try it again as if the opportunity arose but i'm, I'm definitely more comfortable in, in the host's chair and studio well, when it comes to describing the differences in play-by-play, you would absolutely be the guy to comment on the difference between the British way of play-by-play commentary versus the North American way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't want to sound Eurocentric here. I, I really don't. But I like the British way. And it's not the accent. It's just the way they let they let the atmosphere breathe and fill the airwaves, whereas the North American style is to fill every bit of dead air. You can't let anything breathe got to always talk and that works in it works in hockey but for soccer i think you got to let the atmosphere kind of just come through those speakers um you don't have to explain every single play especially i mean okay radio is different right certainly but tv the viewers know what they're watching right let them let them you know have a look and, and, and decide for themselves what's happening mention a few names but just slow down a little bit right and let the pictures tell the story be more be more poetry i guess in some ways right rather than an essay so that, that's, that's the difference. That's my, my personal preference. But there are some great North American broadcasters who do it just right, you know. So um, I guess it's just a personal choice. James, less is more. Now, Sportsnet took over the score in 2012, and eventually you took over at Sportsnet for another Toronto legend, the great Jerry Dobson, after he retired in 2016. Everyone says Jerry was a great guy and a great mentor. What's your thoughts on Jerry Dobson? Both those. Jerry is the best. He really is. When I first went there, honestly, I mean, I'd met Jerry a few times. I knew Craig Forrest a little bit better. Uh, I met Jerry a few times, didn't know him really very well at all. And I thought, man, how is he going to react, you know, respond to me younger, back then, (laughs) younger guy coming aboard who clearly wants his job, right? Let's be honest, right? Coming from the school, which is great, but smaller network to this major player in, in Canadian media. 
with the Premier League and the Champions League and World Cups, you know, how how would he react? You know, would he be prickly? And and the complete opposite was true. So accepting. Um, I, I learned so much from working with Jerry and how he prepared for shows and how he did shows. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant guy. You know, great guy away from the camera as well. You get the same Jerry on camera is the same as away from camera. He's, he's funny. Um, just a, a brilliant human being. And when he actually was thinking of retiring, he pulled me aside and said, listen, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Uh, just so you know, I have no idea how the future looks here, you know, with, with soccer. And <laughs> I still don't believe him completely. But uh, uh, he goes, you know, if it's, if it's his choice, I'd be the guy to take his seat. And thankfully, I, I was given that opportunity. But yeah, Jerry from day one was just absolutely lovely. And, and straight away, any concerns I had about him being a little bit paranoid were soon put away, put to rest. Well, it's absolutely universal, and Jerry Dobson, a great guy. Everyone says that, so it's great to hear. Now, James, you covered TFC when they were so bad, and then when they were so good winning championships, and now again when they are so bad. But I think it's notable, Jerry Dobson and Craig Forrest had to wait like four months to broadcast their first TFC victory. Yeah, and first goal. You know, it took long enough. Craig's got some great stories about trying to muscle through some of those broadcasts. I mean, that was back in those days, they were just horrible. But it was, you know, an expansion team. So there was, I guess, at first, a little bit of patience afforded them. People often ask me, is it easier to cover a bad team or, an e- or a good team? And there's no doubt it's easier to cover a good team. You know, going to training, speaking to the players and coaching staff, they're all happy, they're smiling, you know, nothing's wrong. But you go in and cover a bad team and, you know, you see the toxicity, you know. And, and even though they were great guys, I mean, that first year I mentioned Dickio and Robinson, Andy Welsh, uh, Aleko Eskandarian, these are good guys, they were, and they put a brave face on, but they didn't really want to talk to the media because they're going Owen, whatever it was, to start the season, and was it four games without a goal, I think, or, or something ridiculous, until that, that, that famous uh, day at BMO Field with all the seat cushions flying down, so yeah, Jerry and Craig having to get through there, and I know, I know at one point they got in a bit of trouble because they're quite, I think they're quite scathing towards the club, and I believe MLSE had called up sports, and they're saying, hey, guys, they've got to you know, make an effort here. And like they're saying, well, they're, they're 0 and 4, 0 and 5, 0 and 6. And what do you want them to say? It's, it's really hard. Um, and then you fast forward to now. And this, I mean, in those days, there's still that, that almost that naivety in the fan base. It's this brand new team. Yeah, they suck. They're awful. But it's our team still. It's great. It's a party. Now the fans are so sophisticated. They're angry. They're toxic. They won't take a losing team for very, very long. And I think that's what TFC is having to deal with now, which, you know, is tough, but at the same time, it shows how far we've come as a, as a soccer nation. Well, let's speak about TFC now because the recent big news was Canadian national men's team head coach, John Herdman, jumped over to coach Toronto FC. Now, James, you have to explain this one to me. He gets our national women's team back on track in both the World Cup and Olympics play, lifts our national men's team up over about a decade, to get them into the World Cup, they are, of course, guaranteed a spot at the next World Cup, which we will host here in North America. And John Herdman not only jumps over to coaching our MLS team, Toronto FC, but he also expresses that this is like the pinnacle of his coaching dreams to get this job. Doesn't coaching a national team in the World Cup rank above coaching an MLS team? Yeah, um, it's a complicated, multi-layered issue, this one, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um Listen, John Herbman, like most coaches, always aspired to coach club football. That's where he came from originally, club football. That's where there's probably more opportunity. And to run a club day-to-day when you have your your stadium and your training ground and you're dealing with the players every day, a coach like John 
um, wants to be involved every single day. But that takes nothing away from what he accomplished with, with Canada, and he has been he has been the tipping point for the national teams in this country, both the women and the men. When he arrived with the women, they're coming off a last place finish at the World Cup. He rebuilt them into bronze medal winners, back to back. You know, competitive. He rebuilt the entire program. When he took over Canada in 2018, it was a team that was on a, in a low, one of the many lows, but a team with divisions and cliques, and he, and he rebuilt that into this World Cup team, did incredible things. But working, I think, within Canadian soccer at the national team level comes with a lot of challenges, to say the very, very least. Um, he is such a professional. He demands certain things, including a budget. Um, and when that budget isn't afforded to him, it's a real problem. So I, th- I think he just decided that he's done all he could. And yeah, that, that carrot of a World Cup on home nation is is massive. But I, I wonder if it's as magnetic as people think it is. I, I do wonder whether, you know, you could be in and out within three games and then what, right? Uh, is it worth putting on hold this opportunity? I think the timing was just perfect for him. You know, Canada suckers in, in an all-time low off the pitch. There's some problems once again, perhaps in the room. And then this TFC job opens up. You can stay in Canada. It, it's a great job. No, no matter how bad TFC have been, it's a great job in MLS. It's one of the biggest clubs in North America, one of the richest clubs in North America, who needs to be completely rebuilt, which is what John Herbin does. So I think that's probably why he made the switch. Um, but yeah, I'm sure when 2026 rolls around, part of them will be like, man, it would have been fun to be in charge right now. But who knows what, where TFC is at that point. Yeah, well, great point. The World Cup experience could be three games and out versus here in Toronto. When you're starting at the bottom, you can only go up. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with James Sharman, please check out the more than 160 additional episodes available anytime. We got Jerry Dobson, Jesse Fuchs, Michael Landsberg, Ken Reed, and John Shannon. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, James, in the broadcasting industry, in terms of job security, you you are always a slave to the rights holders. Thus, when Sportsnet lost Champions League and then the Premier League around 2019, the writing was on the wall for you. But when the chop came, instead of despair, you used the occasion to pivot to becoming a food entrepreneur along with your wife, Tony. Please tell us about the origins of Charmin's Proper Pies. Yeah, so this actually began before I left Sportsnet. We began seeing seeing the writing on the wall a little bit, way streaming services were buying rights to, to big leaks and we knew about this zone company had come along you know and was making some noise in the marketplace and in sports and although they were saying the right things you know we're going to try and aggressively to retain the rights they'd lost the champions league the year before so we began thinking man this this you know i, I better have a second and a plan b here put it that way because the media industry is so volatile with or without you know rights you never know. I, I lose friends who are fired from from good jobs every every six months. It seemed laid off. You know, it's a real tough time. It still is. So I needed a plan B. Me and me and my wife Tony. You know, we've always found the food space interesting. She's a real entrepreneur. She's got that that go get about her. You know, she's she's brave. Um, she's tough. She tries things. So we began. Well, what, what shall we do? Uh, around the same time, my mother in law came to live with us for a few months which is another story entirely. She's brilliant, by the way. But hey, she's my mother-in-law. What do you want me to say, right? And she, she'd been making pies for friends and family and at farmer's markets in Alberta for years. 
So, uh, you know, she was bored, you know, began making pies for our friends and family. And then that's kind of when the light bulb went off. Man, yeah, pies. I come from a pie country. It's hard to find good pies in Toronto, you know, in Canada. So we just began just talking, discussing. And then before I knew it, Tony says, oh, by the way, I've got a a store, a farmer's market in the summer. I'm like, you've done what? This is how she operates, right? It actually works. You know, a little, you know, conversation over wine suddenly becomes, you know, a brand new pivot and a brand new job within about a day. So, yeah, that, that began. And, and then we, you know, I went to pie school with my mother-in-law. She taught me all she knows about pie and this famous pastry she makes. And, and we started playing around. And I knew some great pie recipes from England. Chicken Balti, which is real football pie. You can buy them in all the stadiums in England. So I would make them and then bring them to Sportsnet. And I'd feed them to Craig Forrest and Danny Dicchio. Beach is an Englishman. Craig lived in England for 18 years, right? And they'd taste them and they'd say, yeah, it's not quite right here. Try this, try that. And we'd improve and try again until we were comfortable with the recipes. And then we had this farmer's market. And we, we gave it a whirl. And it did really, really well. And then we began selling out of a butcher shop um, in, in the neighborhood. And then I got laid off. And got a bit of a severance package, uh, which allowed us to kind of, you know, grow the pie business a, a little bit more. And we, we were able to get a building on the Danforth in Toronto. My wife was actually also a massage therapist and osteopath at the same time, running that business as well. Um, so we got this building and the plan was for the clinic to be upstairs and the kitchen and the store to be downstairs. So we're building that and then boom, COVID hits. Right towards the end, like, oh no, now what? So we're scrambling to finish this this kitchen we get it just about done but we can't open the shop so what do we do well let's start selling online uh, subscription service service and, and that just seemed to take off during covid because people couldn't go out to the stores they wanted pies delivered to their homes apparently and it kind of grew and as covid continued the clinic couldn't survive unfortunately because of uh some of the draconian <laughs> decisions that, that are put on put on um healthcare workers um, and at that time, as we were growing so much, my wife had to really focus more on, on the pie, on the pie business. So the whole building became this pie business and it's kind of grown ever since from there. You know, um, I was in the kitchen, I was cooking, I was doing everything, but then we hired a real chef who just elevated the, the quality even more. And, and the plan was always Andrew for me to get back in media. You know, it's like, let's establish this, this pie business. Let's see where it goes. If it goes somewhere, great. And then hopefully it goes somewhere where I can then step aside and get back in the media because that's what I love doing right and that's what we, we've done and Tony runs the business now I, I'm there as a somewhere someone she can vent to and you know obviously we discussed the big decisions together but she runs it she's made it what it is and uh, we're still in this massive growth phase right now which is terrifying and stressful but also exciting and invigorating as well well my favorite part of that whole story James was that you were on a need-to-know basis with your wife Tony and she will uh, <laughs> only let you know when the business decisions have been made that's great exactly now I have to apologize for my ignorance to me a pie is an apple pie so I do need you to educate me on what a pie is in your world within British pie culture and what makes a Charmin's proper pie proper so to speak mm-hmm. well I mean listen pies obviously we know them as fruit pies we make fruit pies too but but I grew up on meat pies chicken pot pie, beef and veg, you know, steak and kidney, which is, uh, you know, a very advanced pie for the pie connoisseur. Not many people will try that, but it's really good. So so that's, you know, where we were really, that's our main, main um, product is the meat pie. And what makes it proper? We just, 
we know the pies we've tried in, in Canada over the time, they, they, there's some there's some okay pies, some good pies, but we wanted to cram those things full of ingredients and quality ingredients and have a real kind of homemade feel to them, which we try to maintain even as we're getting bigger now and moving into bigger stores now as well and expanding to Pickering with our factory. It's always very important to maintain that, which can be challenging, right? You know, with the cost of, you know, food going up and ingredients, it's very difficult to, to keep our prices our costs down as much as possible we really try that it's got to be good value and we still you know tell people yeah you know it is good value lift that pie in your hand is full of good ingredients quality ingredients local ingredients and uh that's the secret maintain that that authenticity of of what i grew up eating when my mum would make pies or my grandma would make pies well that's amazing because as you know that is the challenge as you ramp up and why don't you talk a little about that production facility because I understood you were making them on the Danforth at your retail shop, and big change now. Yeah, yeah. So it's about a year ago, around now. We we just we, we're growing to a certain point where it's either we continue the way we are and, and make a few bucks at a store on the Danforth, you know, and some subscription and, and you know deliveries in a couple of stores, or we just go for it. So you know, we, we're we're kind of ambitious people, I suppose. Um, we I guess we got some courage. I guess stupidity, maybe. I don't know. But we said, what the hell, let's just do this thing properly. So we had to find a bigger facility. So we kept the store on the downforth, and we moved most production now out to Pickering in this more factory-type setting uh, with a factory outlet there as well. And that's allowed us to just, you know, well, I don't know how many more pies we make a day, but it's a lot more. It's a lot more. It allows us now to get into, we just got to Loblaws recently. We're, we're talking to some other stores as well. Just trying to get our name out there around Ontario right now, potentially across borders. That's that's the plan right now. But we had to we had to do that to grow, which means reinvesting everything we make back into the business, which is which is great, which is what we must do. But it does come with an element of, of risk and stress. And it's brought that. But uh, you know, touch wood, fingers crossed, you know, with with Tony driving it forward and me just being there to mop up the <laughs> the the odd tear here and there and the what the hell are we doing? Um, it's, it's been a success and uh, we, we feel really good about the future. Well, I think it's fantastic. And congratulations on Loblaws. That is a real coup. The, the supermarket industry is under the microscope these days as retailers like Loblaws continue to achieve record profits while food manufacturers are struggling under the weight of all these costs that the public does not see. Listing fees, slotting fees, warehousing fees. James, I don't want you to reveal anything that will get you in trouble, but Maybe talk about your experience and learnings as you've expanded to selling your pies, not direct to the consumer, but through supermarkets and other food retailers. Yeah, obviously there's lots of hidden costs. Um, and, and with us, you know, really, we were doing so well the subscriptions and, and delivering to people's houses. And we're still doing that. But that's difficult as well because delivery fees have gone through the roof. It, it's just crazy. So to keep those prices down has been a real challenge for us. And I think most people understand that. But um, it's tough, so that's why we've kind of gone more to the wholesale route more recently. But with that, like you said, comes hidden costs, and we're we're traversing that right now. We're figuring things out. Each store has different protocols and different fees. Uh, but you know, our experience at Loblaws has been great so far. So that that's good. You know, they get a bad rap, and you know, the last couple of years in particular, as as has the whole industry. But we've been fortunate so far. Um, we like we've been in there like two weeks. Yeah, this is all I can really speak of right now. It's so early, right? But so far, so good. So you know, what is the next step? You know, more growth, right? You know, can we find investment um, 
there's, there's, there's so much with that business right now that is exciting, but the future is you know well ahead of us. We've really just, just begun. We just started this thing. Fantastic. Have you ever considered of an approach to produce private or white label pies? We have, yeah. Yeah, we actually have a couple of places we do white label pieing for. In fact, um, if you go to any of the Firkin pubs, they have their pies. They're great pies. They're delicious pies because they're our pies. And they've been a brilliant partner for, must be a couple of years now, I think. Just a fantastic partner. So yeah, we're there and in another place as well, which I can't really mention. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting because as much as that is a great opportunity, um, we do really want to push our brand and get that out there, shamans proper. And, and where does that, what can that grow into? Right now it's meat pies and butter tarts, which are, by the way, off the charts. We're actually in a butter tart festival this past weekend for the first time. It was great. But, you know, what, what, where can we expand beyond maybe just pies one day? You know, that's something we, we talk about all the time and we'll, we'll see. Now, e-commerce versus bricks and mortar, you are a Shopify retailer. What's been your experience selling online versus in person? And I guess it's the actual customer interaction that's very different. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like I said, we, we started out pretty much, it was, it was subscription and, you know, online through our website, through Shopify. And it was great. You know, it, it really was. It was exciting. We used to have this um, on, on the app, the Shopify app. Every time a sale went through, your phone would ding. And I remember when it first happened, it's so exciting. You know, oh, wow, it's dinging. That was three dings in an hour. Wow. And we had to turn it off soon after because, you know, without, I'm not bragging by any stretch, but we've got a, a pretty big operation now, right? We just can't do that. You know, the funniest thing, Andrew, we, we actually were lucky during COVID. We were featured on The National. They did a story on, on COVID success stories, actually. So yeah, this is a CBC. This is this big time. So we did the story, and it was airing at like 9.32, I think it was, in an evening. And by 9.35, our phones are going ding, 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 ding. It was the most amazing thing. It was one of the great moments we've experienced with this business, like just how that kind of reach can change everything. So, yeah, it's fascinating learning the e-commerce side and maintaining a good website, the social media aspect, which we must do better on. I acknowledge that. That's That's my fault. But... Being bricks and mortar and meeting the, the customers face to face, we we love that. You know, when I was working in the kitchen, uh, doing these long like twelve, thirteen hour days, I think the store did well because we were upfront and you know people like to speak to the people behind the product. And it was coming out of COVID, um, or even during COVID, you know, when they first opened stores up, and people were so happy to get out and just meet people that that was thoroughly enjoyable. And and just seeing who your customers are. And people coming back, the return customers, when you get return customers, they say, yeah, we're doing something right, you know? So, yeah, both have the, both are great, of course, uh, but very different experiences, for sure. Well, I think the sales ding and the returning customers is so gratifying. It's uh, something that uh, you can just taste and feel and smell, and it really makes you feel good. But the most important question about your Charmin's Proper Pies experience is that as the chief taster, who absolutely lives for your chef declaring a tasting day, how much weight have you put on? You know, it's funny. When I was working in the kitchen, I lost a ton of weight because I was on my feet all day long and you just don't want to eat, right? You're surrounded by food all day long and it's hot in there and you're cooking. It's like the last thing you want to do is eat. You know what? I try and maintain my my my, my fighting weight 
Um, it's up and down. It's probably more the beer than the pies that that cost me my my weight. To be honest with you, uh, <laughs> you try not to eat too much of your your wares because that will. We like we say, listen, it, they're pies. When people will ask, how many calories in your pies? Like, well, we'll give you a number, but they're pies. You know, if you, if you're, it's not a health food. It is what it is. It's a comfort food. It's, it's good, wholesome grub. All right. If you're on a strict diet, don't eat our pies. It's that simple, okay? But treat yourself now and again. So, uh, yeah, it can be difficult, but I do a pretty good job, especially now that I'm not there that often. I'm, I'm in the media TV studio <laughs> most of the time. Well, as we learned from Scarface, don't get high on your own supply. I was going to say that, and I thought, should I? But exactly what it is. <laughs> James, the crust must be lard. Agree or disagree? Oh, agree 100%. Absolutely. People think, oh, butter, a butter crust. Yeah, and they, yeah, they're fine, but lard's richer and it's flakier. And that is my, my mother-in-law's original recipe. We've changed all the recipes over the years, you know, temp, tink, tinkered with it here and our own recipes. But the, the crust has always stayed the same. That is that is world-class. Excellent. Well, I want to get back to football. And with your expertise, I want to ask you about the impact of Saudi Arabia's jump into soccer, similar to what they've done jumping into golf. They've taken ownership of the country's four biggest teams in the Saudi Pro League. They've signed huge names, including Ronaldo, Neymar, to deals worth $2 billion as they attempt to compete with Europe's best football leagues. Is Saudi Arabia the ultimate soccer disruptor, or are they just a platform for the best players to go away, make huge sums of money quickly, and then return? And how will this affect MLS trying to become the fifth major sports league in North America? Yeah, good questions. Uh, they are disruptors, there's no doubt. These guys aren't in it just for the short term. This is sport washing through and through to polish their brand, their their, their controversial brand of their nation. I've never spent more time at you know Room 442 or on Footy Prime talking about Saudi Arabian football than I have right now. It's quite amazing what they're doing. Um, they're, they're, yeah, they're going for, generally speaking, the, the aging players that the Neymars and Ronaldos, but they're also getting some younger players here and there and sprinkling them in as well, which is a real concern for European football and for MLS. MLS say it's not a threat to them, but it is, because for a long time they've been the ones attracting the, the aging players at the end of their careers for, for a couple of decent paydays. And now Saudi Arabia can blow them out of the water completely. Um, you know, what does it mean? I mean, listen, Jordan Henderson is a player who just, went over there from Liverpool. Now, now he was known as being a real advocate for LGBTQ+, um, the, the rainbow shoelaces, the, the rainbow captain's armband was very vocal about it, but he was lured over there for the money, even though he says it's not the money, let's be honest, it's the money, and he's been just crucified for it. So when someone like Jordan Henderson can be lured over there, yeah, who, who's, who's safe? Who, who won't? I mean, everyone's got a price in the head, right? And it's all very well for us to say, oh, well, how could you go to a country with that human rights record? But when you're being offered four, five, six times your salary and you're already rich, it's got to be very difficult. I know, listen, let's be honest. If someone offered me 10 times my, my wage, I'd probably consider it, right? It's tough. So yeah, major disruptors right now. Will they, will they ever compete with the big European leagues? I have my doubts. Right now, they're not even in UEFA, the European Confederation, um, so they can't play in the Champions League, for example. But as as you know, we, we saw a couple of years ago now with the Super League they tried to form with the biggest clubs in Europe, it fell apart in the end after fan backlash. But that's not going away. That will return at some point. And maybe with the power of these Saudi clubs, they can do more harm because their money isn't running out, right? It just isn't. 
China did a similar thing a few years ago, but they had a certain amount of money that was capped. This money's not running out, so I don't see it going away anytime soon. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. They've Their stated goal is to be a top 10 league in the world, and uh, it'll be very interesting. Let's bring it back home. Canada is, of course, co-hosting the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Is this destined to become a huge financial boondoggle, or are you super excited? I am super excited. Um, you know, the financials, World Cups cost a lot of money. Simple as that. Um, I, I'm not your economic major by any stretch financial major. You know, I, I can't give too much insight into what it's going to cost. Is it worth it for the country? You know, you, you hope there'd be legacies in place. Um, Canada has stadiums, not great stadiums, but within Toronto and Vancouver, just two. So it's not like they're building brand new stadiums, which will be white elephants, uh, you know, in, in, in five years' time that we saw in Qatar, we saw in Brazil, you see in, in South Africa. I, I think it'd be a great success. I, I really do. I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. It'll be a festival of football in, in North America, as simple as that. Canada will be there um, regardless. They haven't officially been given the births yet, but they will. So, yeah, I think as a sports fan, we should just enjoy it. And you know what? I mean, if it costs some money for the cities involved, you'd hope there'd be some federal involvement. I, I, I'm sure it's worth it. I, I really do to get the country and the city established on the map. All right. I like it. The enthusiasm. That's great. Let's close off by doing everything, Charmin. Please tell everyone where we can best follow you, where can we best follow or visit Charmin's proper pies, and for your day job, where can we catch all your football-related commentary and expertise? Yeah, so I work at uh, Homestand Sports. Room 442 It is the soccer brand within Homestand Sports. We're on daily, myself and Sarah Peraria, Albert Vitanian, uh tackling all the issues, our own special way. We have fun with it. My podcast is Footy Prime, the podcast which is with Craig Forrest and Jimmy Brennan, Dan Wong, some ex-professional footballers, Jeff Cole, Amy Walsh, a Hall of Famer. And that's actually going to be on One Soccer, the TV network, starting on Monday once a week. We've got a deal just signed with them, which is very exciting for us. So a ton of football. You can get all that information through at James Sharman on, on Twitter. And as for Sharman's Proper, shamansproper.ca is the website. All the info's on there. You can order to your door. Uh, subscriptions or otherwise and uh, yeah just come along for the ride it's fun we, we just started out you might be seeing our pies in your local grocery store pretty soon so please give them a try they're, they're pretty damn good let me tell you you have me sold 100 percent. james it's been great getting to know you hearing your stories and i want to wish you continued success in both your worlds of footy and proper pies just synergy right it's meant to be footy and pies thanks Andrew. i really appreciate it it's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of James Sharman, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Trial Legends Podcast. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. 
Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.